0: Yeah, I was thinking as we uh, sang together this morning, we just sang my sermon. Yeah. It's interesting how God puts things together each week. We didn't uh, really do a lot of discussion other than here's kind of my topic on this week's sermon. And Scott took that, God put together the songs to really, I think, prepare our hearts for this. If you're visiting this morning... We're uh, in a series out of the book of Acts in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible this morning, uh, go ahead and raise your hand. Tom in the back would be happy to give you one. If you don't own a Bible, we would be really happy to just say that's our gift to you. But we're in Acts chapter 9. We've, uh, we're, we're moving through the unfolding of God's plan To take his message of salvation to the world Uh, we we began back in chapter one where jesus says you'll be my witnesses in jerusalem judea and samaria and the remotest parts of the earth and we're now seeing uh, that start to happen beginning in chapter eight last week this week in chapter nine and what's amazing when you think about this, as, as we study and read together, the way God does things most often is nothing close to the way we think God should do things, right? I mean, think about what we have learned so far about the scope and the magnitude of God's salvation and the way he uses his people to now go out into the world and uh, share the good news of Christ. That's his plan, that we would do that. Well, this morning, uh, we're gonna look at uh, an individual in the Bible that by any account or any stretch of our imagination, we would never say this is the guy that's gonna write almost a third of the New Testament. It makes no sense. And while we do that, the underlying theme that I wanna have us grasp this morning is God's mercy and his grace. His mercy and his grace. Because in our humanness, the way God does things makes no sense until you understand his mercy and his grace. I was thinking, what's a a kind of a current story or example we could kind of think about that would help us begin, and I'll use that word careful, begin, to think about mercy and grace. There's a television show on uh, called Undercover Boss. Have you ever seen the show Undercover Boss? There are these executives that own companies and uh, they get uh, all made up so they don't look like themselves and they go out of their offices into the field to the different places they own businesses uh, undercover in disguise and interact with their employees. Okay? And, and so they find out some pretty interesting things many times, things they don't expect. But, but a couple of things always happen in every story. One is, once they interact with some of their employees, there's, there's this compassion that begins to grip their heart. That, that's the human side of this uh, TV show. This, this compassion they have for the stories of everyday life of people that are going through poverty or sickness or or family strife. And so at the end of the show, the the boss uh, invites the employees that he met uh, that were part of this episode to him, uh, his office. They discover that's the boss. They said some things they probably shouldn't have said. (laughs) They're a little worried. (laughs) But, but then, because of the compassion that the boss has, he starts to give these really extravagant gifts. Like $50,000 to someone struggling. Like starting college tuition programs for kids of employees. Sending them on vacations that they've never been able to even dream of having. And their reaction is always tears. This gratefulness, this thankfulness of, I didn't deserve this. Why why would you do this? And I sit there and I cry. And, you know, um, (laughs) because it grips my heart. They are so thankful because they never expected what was going to happen. And I say we're going to begin there because that's a, a pretty simple human example of something that is far greater that God has done in our life to bring us to faith in Christ. Our human struggle, I'm going to suggest this morning, is uh, we live in a world that uh, we're so familiar with that in order to get anything, you have to do something. Right, You have to work to get a paycheck. You don't have to take out a loan or give money to own a house. I mean, everything around us is work to get something, do something to get something. And this morning, as we look at salvation, we'll see grace and mercy that flies in the face of human reason. Every area of our life, Is just the exact opposite of the way God acts towards us. Here's why. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 55, 9. First, the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways, this is God speaking, my ways are higher than yours, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. We can't begin to even think the way God thinks. His ways are so drastically different. So when we come to a passage like we're going to dig in this morning, our natural response, thinking of this verse, is this does not make any sense, God. Today's passage, God will use someone who hated Christians so much Desired to do everything in his power to stop the spread of the gospel. Someone who was so intent on destroying the Christian faith that he literally would oversee people being killed. That's the guy that God saves, who is prominent in the New Testament. That most of us are familiar with when we open our Bibles and read some of the letters that God penned through him. Today's passage is not about Saul. It's about God and his grace and his mercy. Let me say it again. Today's message is not so much about Saul but about God's grace and God's mercy. So if you're not there yet, Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, we're going to look at uh, 9, 1 through 19. Get my voice warmed up here. Here's where we begin. Actually, let me say back in chapter 8, Saul appears uh, for the first time at the stoning of Stephen. He's he's present. He, He holds the cloaks of those who kill Stephen. He's a willing participant in this act. And now in chapter 9, the story unfolds a little more about him. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that, he could, um, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem now as he went on his way he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and falling to the ground he heard a voice saying to him Saul Saul why are you persecuting me and he said who are you Lord and he said I am Jesus whom you are persecuting But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you're to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight. And he has seen a vision. And a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed, entered the house, laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me to you. You may again regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. What a crazy account, right? I mean, it makes no sense in our humanness, as I've said. Saul, the man who was the enemy of Jesus, and the enemy of Jesus' people, a man who knew no mercy, Listen, a man who knew no mercy now comes face to face with the merciful Jesus and his life, his life is changed. How crazy is this? Well, it doesn't make sense, except that God's mercy and grace on any heart will produce either a continued hardness or a softness, and we see in Saul's life that it produces a soft heart in him, one that is willing to surrender himself, even to the point that he proclaims in Philippians chapter three, whatever gain I had, I consider a loss for the sake of Christ, a softness because of grace and mercy. Now, if you're taking notes, let me tell you to write down a couple of other verses that give the same account exactly with a few more details. Acts chapter 22 and Acts chapter 26. Let me say we're going to spend some time in our community groups looking at those passages. I'm going to encourage you guys to do that. But those two uh, accounts repeat exactly what happens in Acts chapter 9. It's interesting, Paul regularly told this story of how he met Jesus and it transforms his life so let's look at a couple of things before I take it to some conclusions about grace and mercy first in the first two verses of chapter 9 you've got Saul the religious elite and his motives pretty well declared and defined for us Damascus was an old city would have had tens of thousands of Jews living in that area with multiple synagogues. It's an area that is northeast of Jerusalem, probably a four-day walk, if you will. And so Saul goes to the high priest of the time in Jerusalem, and he gets uh, some extradition papers. Maybe that's a good way to say it. They, They give him... Approval to go to Damascus, do all the synagogues. And you say, well, how would they know that? Well, they would have kept membership records. Okay? And the high priest would have known this and he would have all authority to go find anybody who was proclaiming Jesus. And here's what he was going to do with them he says he was going to get them, man or woman. Bind them, bound them, shackle them, march them back to Jerusalem where they would probably be put to death. That's his goal. That's his motives. Find whoever he could find that said they believed in Jesus and loved Jesus and put them to death. Get rid of them. This, this whole scourge of the Christian faith had to be stopped. And Paul thought that was his Personal calling. Well, you would say, Well, that seems a little strange, but unless you know the background of Paul, it, it might be strange. But let me let me just tell you this morning a little bit about the person Paul. Paul's probably born pretty close to the same time that Jesus was born. And so he had grown up in the time hearing about Jesus and everything that was happening. He was born in a city called Tarsus, which is modern-day Turkey. He was born a Roman citizen because of being born in that area. But he had Jewish roots. Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, Paul gives a lengthy um, account of his credentials as a religious man, Here's what it says. He said he was circumcised on the eighth day would have been in strict adherence to the uh, Mosaic law that was prescribed. Again, Philippians 3, 4 through 6, if you're taking notes. He says he was of the people of Israel. Meaning he was Jewish by right and by birth. He says he was of the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin, the most favored tribe, if you will, the tribe which the first king of Israel came from. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He would have been raised by parents, adhering to the strict laws of the Jewish faith and customs. He would have known the original Hebrew language and studied it. He says he was a Pharisee, which he was, meaning he was trained by a very famous, well-known rabbi called Gamaliel. Gamaliel. And so he was trained in the best school, in the best ways of the Jewish faith. And then he says, according to legalistic righteousness, in order to do all things, to be self-righteous, followed all the right rules, brought all the right sacrifices, did all the right customs, prayed the right times, you get the picture. And he actually says, and, Philippians 3:4 that if anybody could boast of religious qualifications and obedience, he'd be the poster child. So why the intensity to eliminate the Christian faith? Why? Because it went against everything that Paul had been trained and raised in to believe. That the way to be right with God would be to Take manners in your own hands and follow these things. Make so many sacrifices. Follow this rule. Do this thing. Salvation is in your hands. And along comes Jesus that says, Salvation is not in your hands. You actually are pretty helpless. And so the temple in Jerusalem is the center point for all the Jewish faith. Paul's going to bring people back to get rid of this nuisance Jesus and this message of grace and mercy. I guess you could say Saul didn't understand his need of grace and mercy, did he? And that brought a spiritual blindness to him, just like it does to us. Saul only knew how to function by a works-based system of self-righteousness. And I'm guessing this morning that if you're not a follower of Christ, that's all you know as well. There has to be something I can do. There has to be a way that I can make God happy with me so that his favor shines on me. And maybe you even think showing up this morning is one of those things. Verses 3 through 9, you have Saul, the religious elite, now confronted by Jesus. And he, like every one of us, what will he do? I mentioned that some other text in Acts 22 and 26 give some additional details. As Paul stands before kings and before other crowds of people to describe his personal testimony, he adds that it's about noon when this happens matter of fact in 9 verse 27 in our passage just a few verses ahead he actually says he didn't only hear jesus he saw jesus in this event and his response is who are you lord and we begin to see this grace and mercy of jesus unfold you know as dastardly as paul is jesus doesn't say who do you think I am? Who do you think is speaking to you? Try to guess. I mean, boom! Right up front, he responds and tells him it's Jesus. Now this had to bring back the knowledge he had of Jesus to this point, as well as the followers of Jesus who would be willing to go die for their faith. This is Jesus speaking to you who lived a life during your time, who died on a cross, which you knew about, who was raised again, which you want to deny, speaking to you. Jesus always confronts our hearts about what we believe about him, doesn't he? I want you to look closely at verse 5 for a moment. Because if you're not uh, careful, you'll glance over in a very important piece. Verse 5, when Jesus responds to Paul's question, who are you, Lord? It says, I am Jesus. I am Jesus. Do you recognize that phrase? That's the phrase God used to describe himself all the way back in the Old Testament. I'm Jesus, the I am, is the way Paul would have heard it. I'm Jesus, the I am, the Son of God, who is fully God, who came and lived and died to reconcile men to himself. This Jesus, who is God, is speaking to you, Saul. And he would have been very familiar with that phrase. The other thing I notice about those verses is that we don't get a lot of detail about his salvation, right? He doesn't go to um, a church and walk the aisle. He he doesn't uh, detail, here's the sinner's prayer that he prayed. Kind of messes with your theology this morning probably, right? But doesn't say. All we know is that uh, Paul saw hears Jesus, he responds to Jesus, he obeys Jesus, he surrenders his life to Jesus, he gets baptized so everybody knows he now lives for Jesus, and we read the rest of the story later on. And what about verse 7? What do you make of verse 7? He had a group of people traveling with Saul who heard everything that happened. And their response is, uh, don't know what to do. They heard it. They were aware of what had just happened to Saul, and they're dumbfounded. You know, not all who encounter Jesus will respond to Jesus. Not all who hear the words of Christ are willing to surrender and give their life to Christ. And so for verse verse 9, we see Saul for three days, all by himself, not eating or drinking. I think this encounter with Christ was so intense. It was so intense that he could do more than reflect and pray and think about what this means and what it will mean. And then verses 10 through 19, Jesus now reveals his gospel expansion to others. Another grace, if you will. You have Paul who is, had mercy by God to him and grace that would save him. Now he's in the very town he came, which isn't it interesting. They must have known that, that Saul was there to arrest and take people. It says so. And God, Jesus, speaks to Ananias. And Ananias's first response is like mine. Wait a minute, don't you know who this guy is? Lord, this is the guy who came to arrest us and take us back and be killed. You want me to go to where he is and pray over him and show love to him Of amazing, and Ananias, you know, says that he, you know, who this is. But Ananias, in this moment, is reminded of God's mission and his gospel to reach all people, and he would have a new faith time in his own life. Am I gonna believe Jesus or not believe him? He's confronted with God's mercy and grace, and so God's people get the grace from God to see the full evidence that Saul is a genuine believer because Saul publicly gets baptized. He publicly declares my life is now devoted to Christ. I want us to consider this story this morning in the context of mercy and grace and what it has to say to us. I want you to listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5 this morning. Just listen. But God, being rich, being rich, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together by Christ. By grace, you have been saved. The mercy of God, the grace of God are two terms that we use pretty flippantly and fluently within churches, right? I mean, it's part of what we know. We, we sang them this morning, and, and I think like a lot of our Christian faith, if we're not careful, we, we lose the impact and meaning of those terms, Here's some definitions, if you will, of mercy and grace. Mercy, God's mercy, is not giving us what we deserve. Catch it? Not giving us what we deserve. God has compassion and shows compassion on us, not because we deserve it, but because he is determined to show compassion and love and goodness to us. I remember a minute ago I said everything in our life is about doing something to get something. You know how radically different this is for us to grasp? That, that there's absolutely nothing you did or could do to merit God not giving us what we deserve. God knowing the misery of our sin, our guilt before him. It's God's compassion and love then for us, not because of our love for him. God's grace, God's grace. Grace is God's goodness to give us what we do not deserve. I know it's a play on words, but mercy is not giving us what we deserve, but grace is giving us what we don't deserve. In spite of our sin, God who is rich in mercy now decides to reach down to us to love us and give us as sinners what we don't deserve. And that is his love and forgiveness and restoration. Everything, friends, everything we have is given to us. Because of God's grace. The mercy and grace are the igniter fuel for God's salvation, I think. Mercy and grace, the igniter fuel for God's salvation. It's impossible for anyone to come to faith in Christ without grace and mercy. Let me say it again. It's impossible for anyone to come to faith in Christ to be saved without grace grace, and mercy. Changes how we sing those songs, doesn't it? Changes how we come before God in worship. Understanding God's grace and mercy to us is essential for us knowing how to love and love Jesus and love others. So here's three ways that I want us to explore mercy and grace. Three ways that I think God uses his grace to lead us. First is this, God's grace and mercy protect and prohibit us from believing in self-righteousness. Let me say it again, God's mercy and grace protect and prohibit us from believing in self-righteousness. Salvation is a work from start to finish by God. And we see that in today's passage, don't we? You have Saul content because he hates Jesus. Don't miss that. Saul hates Jesus. And he hates Jesus' followers. He had no intent on loving Jesus when his day began, the day that around noon, Jesus decides enough. It was Jesus' work from start to finish to bring Saul to salvation. God decides because of his love to give us mercy, to give us a path to forgiveness and restoration through Christ. Not because we deserve it, but because he has willingly decided to do it. The battle Again, is that because everything in life flies contrary to that. Uh, I, I have to be able to do something to make God love me, that there has to be something my part has to be something to gain favor with God, right? I mean, I do it. I would mean, be honest? No, we're, we're, we're going to teach you here at the church that nothing can get you there, but when you are there. You will want to love. You will want to devote yourself to Christ because you understand grace and mercy. God decides, because of his love, to give grace, sending Christ to die and rise again on our behalf at his expense to all who trust and believe. God decides because of his grace and mercy that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. All who believe in his grace and mercy. God declares on the cross because of his grace and mercy, it is finished. It's it's finished. You remember Jesus crying out those words. It's completed by me for you. If you don't understand the grace and mercy of God, you wrongly believe you have a part in your salvation. And the very gospel of Jesus is distorted, my friends. Listen, because God has proclaimed his grace and mercy through Christ, self-righteousness is an affront to him. This is hard, I know, this morning. But let me say it again. Because God has proclaimed his grace and mercy through Christ, self-righteousness is an affront to him because it diminishes the very thing that he did. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one can boast. God's work, God's mercy, producing God's grace through Christ Jesus. Breathe in the marvelous wonder of God's grace and mercy this morning. Breathe it in, take it deep in your lungs. And now you're ready to understand salvation. Until you understand God's mercy and grace, you've wrongly trusted in your ability to try and be right with God. Second, Grace and mercy are the mechanism that helps us worship and love Jesus properly. Grace? and mercy are the mechanism that helps us worship and love Jesus properly. We've read Paul's account this morning, but if you were to go back to the letter to the Philippians, which was written by Paul, he makes a statement in chapter one that says this, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because Paul encountered and understood grace and mercy, he now is able to love and worship Jesus properly. Grace and mercy reveal the depth of our sin, but also reveals the fullness of God's love and his forgiveness through the gospel. It really allows us to see our helpless state When we understand grace and mercy, grace and mercy allow us to grasp the love of God for us in Christ Jesus, which should lead us to joyful worship with grateful hearts. Understanding the grace and mercy of God produces humble and thankful hearts in us. It makes us grateful and unveils the generous love of God to us, which is necessary for us to worship. Properly, when we struggle with intimacy with Jesus, I think a good place to start maybe is to go back and begin to reflect on God's mercy and His grace toward you. Because when you do that again, it reflects the giant love and giving of Him to us in Christ. Micah seven, verse eighteen. The gospel is revealed, and, and, and the gospel is reflected on by the prophet. It says, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgressions? It says, he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Who is a God like you? Grace and mercy remind us of God's love. Grace and mercy lead us to a greater understanding of our need for Christ. Not just his salvation, but the daily presence of Christ in our life. Let me say this. The grace and mercy open the door for us to live in joy and thankfulness. It's the doorway in which we can enter so that we know how to live joyfully and thankfully. Because we now thank God for His grace in protecting and providing and being present with us, because we begin to understand we don't deserve any of it. And so we have grateful, thankful hearts. Third, and closing this morning, grace and mercy provide the model for us to love others. uh Oh, Jeff, don't go there. Grace and mercy provide the model for us to love others. This is perhaps one of the bigger challenges of grace and mercy. And yet yeah, we can begin to grasp it a little bit with God. But when it's applied and expected in our own life, we realize how hard and big this is. You see, God's grace and mercy model the relationships that God desires for you and I to live in. Giving grace to others, showing mercy to others, offering forgiveness to others. And Just imagine with me for a moment what our relationships can look like when we really pursue grace and mercy with those that we have relationships with. Living in grace and mercy enables us to be more patient, doesn't it? enables us to stand back and be more patient with someone because we remember God's patience for us. Living in grace and mercy enables us to be more loving the way God loved us. Living in grace and mercy enables us to be more forgiving and forgiving others. Living in God's grace and mercy motivates us to develop relationships around the gospel, Because the gospel is rooted in God's mercy and grace. And so we can learn and begin to love others the way God loved us. You do remember that was a command of Jesus. Let me clear something up before I close. And it's important that you hear me on this. Living in grace and mercy does not mean you blindly ignore sin or wrongdoing. Catch me? Does not mean you blindly ignore sin. It means, though, that you desire the best for those who are in that sin against you and provide avenues for them so that they could be forgiven and reconciled. Let me say it again, you don't overlook sin, it says in your heart. You open the door to restore broken relationships when repentance comes. Grace and mercy do not mean we overlook sin and overlook its consequences. No, they allow us to have hearts ready to forgive and restore when sin is confessed. Make sense? So here's the question for us this morning when it comes to relationships. Are you willing to offer the same grace and mercy given to you by Jesus to others? Are you willing to say, I will offer grace and forgiveness and mercy and love others the same way it was given to you mercy and grace a little deeper topic than maybe what we thought let's pray together I was thinking this week as we begin to pray that maybe here's a prayer that I need to pray more often and I know it is. Maybe you would join me in it. Help us, Lord, to understand our need of your mercy so that we don't minimize our sin so that we can begin to comprehend your grace which will create in us thankful hearts that will be surrendered and devoted to you. And help us to do that, Lord, so that it brings glory to you by showing the transforming power of the gospel, the mercy you gave to us, the grace you gave to us, Mercy and grace. May we learn to grow in it and live in it and give it. Amen.